Good morning, everybody. Welcome in. It is a, uh, what is today? Thursday. Uh, sometimes you lose track when you're riding up and down the road and you meet yourself going the opposite direction. This is Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference, and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. Also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention, and I am currently the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church over in Simpsonville. Had a great time uh, doing Bible study last night. We talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16. Uh, it's talking about Paul uh, and the master builder, making sure that the foundation of the church and of our lives is built on the only sure foundation and that we don't try to lay any other foundation. And of course, that foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. Um, yesterday in the South Carolina House of Representatives, they passed H344-3447. And it passed 83 to 31, so it was a big win for Representative John McCravey, who was one of the main sponsors of the bill, and, of course, all those who were sponsoring the bill. And so now it heads over to the Senate, where the prospects are not great, but we're going to begin to try to convince the Senate that this is the bill. This is the only opportunity that we're going to have to protect life until 2024 into 2025, really, because 2024 will be the election year. And there could be a few Senate seats that get flipped in 2024, and abortion could be one of the reasons here in South Carolina. So, you know, but to wait till then, I mean, that's the that's the big thing. That's the question. We're going to allow up to 1,000 abortions a month while we try to get to an election in 2024, that just doesn't make any sense to me. When we have the legislature in session now, yes, we had the heartbeat bill overturned by the Supreme Court, but this is a Human Life Protection Act. It um, bans abortion beginning at conception, and it was suggested by Justice Few on the Supreme Court that protecting life beginning at conception would mean that the right to privacy in the South Carolina Constitution would have to be extended to babies in the womb. So that would change the decision. Now, we also have a new justice on the Supreme Court in South Carolina. So a lot of things are different, but something that stays the same is that the Senate is pretty much dead set against, pass against passing a conception bill. So... It's just a matter, you know, in politics of the people having their voice. If enough voices are raised with senators in their districts who are opposed to this, then there's a possibility that they could change their mind because they're supposed to be representing their constituents. And if, if, if there's not any outcry, then it's possible that this bill won't even get taken up in the Senate. So it's up to the people of South Carolina. And you know, that's always the case in a constitutional republic. Whether we like it or not, we have the government that we put in place, and we have the government taking action that we allow because we have the ability as the electorate to change those things. I mean, we can, we can make sure that, you know, abortion is outlawed, that life is protected if— the people who represent us 
are in those places to vote for that kind of legislation. And the only way they're going to get there is if we go to the polls and put them there. So pretty simple stuff. I mean, it's really not rocket science, um, but it's become difficult in South Carolina for some reason. We just we put these people in the House that are definitely pro-life and very dedicated to life, and we have a number of people like that in the Senate. It comes down to a handful of Republicans who just will not support the idea of life beginning at conception, at least protecting it from that point. And so that becomes the problem. And today is the first day of our opportunity to try to change their minds. I mean, we've got a long way to go in the legislative session. We, we go all the way to May, and this is February. So we've got March and April. The rest of February, we've got March and April, and then into May um, before, of course, now the budget, once, once the House and the Senate turns its attention toward the budget, then they're, they're, it's going to be very difficult to get their attention on anything else. Um, they can, you know, as long as bills have gone through the process, gotten through the committee process, and have made it to the floor, they'll, they will be considered uh, even after the budget process begins. But it just, it, it, things slow down considerably once that begins. So we need, yes, we've got time, but we need to be calling on the Senate now, beginning now, today, uh, and asking them to pass H-44, uh, well, H-443-447. Sorry, I'm, I'm not good with numbers. H-3447, it's just remembered as HLPA, the Human Life Protection Act. Uh, congr- kudos to uh, Representative McCravey. He was on the show yesterday morning talking about this, and uh, it, it's a it's a, a, a big victory for uh, for him, for the Family Caucus, for conservatives in the House that really wanted to see this bill get through to pass it with such overwhelming numbers. I mean, 83 to 31 is, is pretty good in the House. Um, I'm sure there were some abstainers. That doesn't, you know, 83, 31 doesn't quite equal 124, I don't think, does it? 93, 103, 113, that's about 114. So there's about 10 people for one reason or another, I guess, that didn't vote. Um, you may ask a question, okay, what if, if you're interested about this, what can I do? How can I do this? Um, what you need to do is contact your senator. Now, if you live in the upstate, most of the senators here in the upstate, I, I don't think they would have a problem uh, that they're going to have a problem voting for this bill. But you may want to just reach out to them, find out who your senator is, reach out to them and thank them for being pro-life and remind them that this is the bill. And, and yes, we know the Senate passed the heartbeat bill, but that bill is not going to go anywhere in the House. I, I, there's, and, and it's going to be difficult for the Human Life Protection Act to go anywhere in the Senate. I mean, we've got what amounts to a stalemate, but that I think that's um, that's our best chance because I just the House. I don't think the House is going to be able to pass um, the heartbeat bill. So you find out who your senator is. Send send them a note. Say yes, we know that the Senate passed the heartbeat bill, but this protects life beginning at conception. Please support this bill when the opportunity comes and they need to vote there's several votes that they're going to need to take in order to get it passed they're going to have to 
They may have to vote in the caucus to set it for special order. You can set it for special order from the floor. But um, in the caucus meeting, if there are people who push for special order slots, uh, the caucus has some spaces they can put bills so that they get considered. Um, if the heart, if the Human Life Protection Act has to go through the committee process over in the Senate, which it may, that means it would be assigned to a committee, maybe medical affairs, then it'd have to go through a subcommittee hearing, and then the full committee would vote, and then it would go out to the floor. I mean, you know, all of that takes time. So we, we need this process to be streamlined. We need senators to be willing to support that. And we need them to be willing to vote for cloture, which means shut down debate. That takes 26 votes. And then after you've stopped debate, you have to have 24 votes to pass the bill. So you can see, I mean, it, it's hard to get any piece of leg legislation through. Um, and it's, you know, kind of designed so that you can't just pass bills willy-nilly left and right. But unfortunately, that makes it difficult to pass bills that are really important sometimes. So be praying about this. Um, contact your senator if you don't know how to reach your senator, sc.statehouse.gov. That's sc.statehouse.gov. If you go there, you'll be able to put in your address, find your senator, and then you can contact them and tell them that you'd like to see this bill become law. I keep going back to Sarah Huckabee Sanders' response to the State of the Union address. I, I don't know what it is that keeps drawing me back, except that her comment that we're now talking about the difference between normal and crazy, not the difference between left and right or Republican and Democrat. And as those words kind of bang around in my head, you know, as I think about them, I find more and more examples of the difference between normal and crazy. I mean, normally, for example, you wouldn't give a second thought about traveling to a city or a state for three days that banned abortion. A normal thinking person would not sit back and say, you know, I'm not going to go to this conference. I'm not going to go. We're going to move this conference out of out of a state where uh, where abortion is not readily available because some of our women are concerned that they might need to have an abortion while their 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 medical care could be compromised because they're a woman if they're going into a state that bans abortion. There's a time in our history, and, and it's not been too long ago, when if somebody said that, they would be laughed off the stage. They would be laughed into obscurity. No one would pay any attention to such a ridiculous preposition. But now there are those who would applaud this idea. Oh, you're right. You're right. Gee, if you're pregnant and you're going for three days to a state that doesn't have any abortion access— um, why well, you might decide you need to have an emergency abortion. You might, which, by the way, emergency abortions are legal in just about every state that bans abortion. In fact, there are circumstances where I can't imagine an emergency situation that would threaten a woman's health where she wouldn't be able to ob obtain an abortion. This is the lie of the left. This is the crazy versus the normal. This is the kind of stuff that gets pushed out there and people read this, and if they don't think deeply about it, in other words, they don't go beneath the surface and think, what is the logic of this? Then they can go, well, yeah, this, these women, they can't get health care in this state because, 
because they don't have abortions. Something could happen. Yeah. With an abortion? Yeah. The the worst thing that could happen is that you could kill your baby, decide to kill your baby. And why would you do that at a three-day conference dealing with education? But no, they're worried that, that something would happen to them. See, they want to perpetuate the myth. What's at the bottom of this is sending a signal to women everywhere that abortion is health care. This is the, the new phrase, the new mantra. Abortion is health care. That's denying, if you can't get an abortion, you're denying an important part of women's health care. Therefore, as a woman, your health would be in danger if you're in an environment where you can't get an, an abortion. The only person in danger in that environment is the baby, not the woman. Because again, there there are no in every state where abortion is greatly curtailed, there are exceptions that protect the woman's life. But here's the here's the story. The Association for Education, Finance, and Policy announced in an August blog post that its March conference would relocate from Fort Worth, Texas to Denver after claiming it had heard from members who felt they could not risk their health and safety by traveling to Fort Worth for our 2023 three-day, I put that part in there, annual meeting. This claim is predicated by a fear of Texas anti-abortion laws that took effect following the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision in late June. Now, bear in mind, that the Association for Education, Finance, and Policy Board claims that they're an apolitical organization. That means they don't deal with politics. They value their members. We hold, many members in our group hold to diverse beliefs. Yeah, right. You're so diverse that you would make a decision to move your conference to Colorado from Texas because it's possible that over a period of three days you'd need to kill a baby and you wouldn't be able to. I mean, I wonder what else they could come up with that they they might need to do. They they might want to check on Colorado law. You know, maybe they need to rob a store. Maybe they need to there's going to be a great need arise for their medical safety that they're going to need to uh go out and and commit a crime against a family member. I mean, you you understand where I'm going with this. If if you can say with a straight face that killing a baby is somehow health care for a woman, then you can put all kinds of things on the table with that. Um, I like the way the Daily Signal puts this. It says, what follows is a hilariously contrived situation in the most dramatic of means possible. The Association for Education, Finance, and Policy claims that a situation could arise in which a pregnant woman conferee attendee, conference attendee, who was somehow cleared to travel to the event by her OBGYN, might have a catastrophic complication that requires health care treatment that she could not access. Just a lie. Just a straight up, what, what, I'm, I'm going back to the natural, a canard, a prevarication. I love it when the guy in the movie starts using all these words. What's that? You know, you've got, you've got the, the main character, Robert Redford, and finally he says, a lie. It's a lie. And this is a lie. Because, again, they could have an abortion if it was an emergency. While claiming not to be a political organization, the AEFP board then analyzes and interprets Texas law to conclude that the state would not care for the life of the mother. This hysteria follows a series of economists' inaccurate reactions to the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. This is 
you know, what if they had a miscarriage? Oh, they, well, well, then they couldn't get care if they're in Texas because that, you know, these these abortion laws, they just make stuff up to scare women, to make them think that the people who put these laws in place, that they want to frame Republicans as mean and uncaring of women's needs when the fact is that nothing like this is if, if, if it did happen over a three-day period, if an emergency abortion was necessary for the life of the mother, she could get that procedure. This is all about making a political statement. It's about scaring women. It's about demonizing Republicans. It's about mischaracterizing abortion law for the advancement of people who are trying to overturn these laws or who are trying to, put, like in South Carolina, where we're trying to pass the law and we run into uh, resistance. Gene, thanks for calling. Good morning. We are now, as you uh, pointed out, in the age of the uh, bizarre and the arcane, and uh, there is a new biology out there that you've talked about that uh, uh, for which uh, this health care rights for women has uh, ramifications. And given the new biology age that we're in, what do we do about pregnant men? Yeah, no, I know. You know, it's funny that none of the men have complained that are going to this, edu- that may be attending this education conference. I suppose yeah. uh, they think that since they are male, that they won't have a situation where their health care would be called into question. So, you know, <laughs> ah, Gene, it's, you know, it's just, it, it's, it really is crazy. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. All right, on to another story that goes in the normal versus crazy. I wanted to put a couple of these together. This is coming from, that was Daily Signal. This is Daily Wire. Neurologists are reporting that the majority of teenagers who began experiencing strange tics after watching TikTok videos during the pandemic are now recovering. Have you heard about this? Did you know that there were teenagers during the pandemic that that began to develop these tics while they were watching TikTok and nobody seems to know why? You know, tics are a a serious neurological uh, problem, but... The, these are, this doesn't seem to have anything rooted in biology or anything else. Uh, in fact, the treatment for these teenage, teenagers was to get them first to acknowledge that they could stop the tick. You know, a, a real tick is neurological and can't you can't just decide I'm not going to do it anymore because you lose that's the whole thing. You, you lose control over a particular part of the body. But these teenagers had, had merely convinced themselves, you talk about psychosomatic illness, the ability to manipulate the body by getting through the mind, this is, this is a classic case. Because now all of a sudden, once they go through counseling, once they're told that they have the control over their own body, all they have to do is exercise it, uh, lo and behold, the tick goes away. Since 2020, doctors have been treating thousands, thousands of teens for sudden explosive tics with no known biological cause that they believe are linked to popular TikTok videos of individuals claiming to have Tourette syndrome. So there, you, you understand if, if a normal, unaffected biological teenager, and and when I say unaffected biological, I'm talking about there's no biological reason that they would be experiencing a neurological disorder. When, When they watch somebody with Tourette's, 
they begin to exhibit Tourette's syndrome. If that can happen through the power of suggestion, how much more is it likely that the sudden wave of girls that are deciding that they're transgender is all part of social media's influence as they get in there and they become sort of a group think? This is the same thing, except it has a physiological manifestation. According to a recent New York Times article, the neurologists treating the new cohort of functional disorders say that's the majority of cases, that the majority of cases, rather, have resolved on their own. Now listen to this statement by Dr. Tamara Pringsheim as she was being interviewed for the New York Times. Adolescence is a period of rapid social and emotional development. They are like sponges grabbing on to new skills to cope. Now, they're like sponges. Can, can we back up and apply this again to this sudden explosion? You have an explosion. They describe it as an explosion of teenagers who are having Tourette syndrome symptoms without having Tourette syndrome because they were watching it on TikTok. How about the explosion, again, of, young, of girls in particular, young girls, impressionable in the adolescent age who are declaring that they're transgender or gay. You know, now you've got some surveys showing that depending on the age group, if you're talking about, um, you know, let's say 18 to 35, you've, you've got upwards of 40% of the population that might be gay. Do you think that has something to do with the proliferation of the concept of gayness in society? Or do you think all of a sudden we've had this huge coming out that 40% of that age group have actually been gay? They've just suppressed it. That's, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. The phenomenon known as TikTok ticks is considered by medical experts to be one of the most prominent modern examples of mass psychogenic illness, a condition in which groups of people experience similar symptoms without a clear medical explanation. Similar outbreaks have occurred for centuries and can spread rapidly in small communities. Clusters of sudden symptoms can also occur among groups, which usually reflect shared stressors among group members. In the Middle Ages, nuns in a French convent began meowing like cats due to fears of possession by the devil. Similarly, in the 2000s, hundreds of children, asylum seekers in Sweden, became mute and bedridden for prolonged, for prolonged periods of time. So this is, in other words, this is psychosomatic. That's, that's what we used to call it. It's an illness or a condition or a, something happening that is caused by the brain by the way people are thinking about things, by the influence that people have over others. Do you know, I've, I've got to do some research on this before we talk about it in detail, but do you know there are, there are people called furries? We've actually got some of this going on in South Carolina. Furries are people who have feline characteristics. In other words, they meow, um, they dress and make their faces appear to be feline it's pri it's primarily among girls but there are some guys that take on these characteristics and when they or ask a question for example in a in a school setting then they meow or they Why? make some kind of animal because they're they're furries they're humans who are 
actually cats. They have no, cat. No, 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 no. Well, in I, South I mean, Carolina, um, I was talking to somebody the other day who said that there are a couple of cases of that um, that in South Carolina that the school systems are uh, school system is trying to figure out exactly how to deal with because it's really hard to educate a child who meows a lot and you know sort of is disruptive because they think they're a cat. My point is this: you once one type of behavior begins like that, then it tends to spread because other people see it and they're drawn into it and they think, oh, I might be, I've, you know, maybe that's me. Maybe that's my, particularly among adolescents. And that's why the story caught my attention because it's, it's a glaring illustration of what happens in our adolescent years because of the fact that adolescents are very susceptible to impressions that they receive, things that they see, examples that they look at or participate in. It can actually transform the way they respond. Now, once these, as we said, once these adolescents go through counseling and they're convinced that they can, in fact, stop the twitching, it goes away because it has no biological or psychological root. Well, you could say it has a psychological root, but it's not one that's firmly planted in the brain, it's a thought process that they've gone through because of something that they've watched, something that social media has influenced them over. Thanks for listening to the show so far today. Alan's listening, and he's calling in. Go ahead, Alan. Hey, good morning, Tony. Um, you know, just your commentary about the, the furries. Um, we uh, made the joyful journey to South Carolina out of Illinois two years ago, and so glad to be here. Um, this is an issue in the school, the public school district, so much so that they actually put litter boxes in the bathrooms for some of the kids because obviously the leaders aren't strong enough to lead and help get these kids the help they need, so they just accommodate their. Well, now their, I, I checked. I checked into that. Are you are you talking about uh, firsthand experience, knowledge here of something that you know yeah, for sure. sure? Because oh the, no, no, this is not this is not gossip whatsoever. This is. Do I? Literal, yes. Okay. We were, this is not gossip whatsoever. Yeah, I know this. We saw this happening. And, and, um, in South you know, Carolina? Part of the driving reason. In Illinois. No, sir. Oh. No, sir. I apologize. Okay. In this Illinois. We left Illinois. So it's happening in Illinois. I got gotcha. you. And so, yep. I haven't seen it here. And hopefully, um, you know, hopefully we've got leaders that will protect the kids from that. But um, right. I feel for those kids that are, that are so, um, um, you know, disrupted. But. But yeah, I mean that kind of that kind of furry behavior, that 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 psychosis is yeah, already been it is. Uh, it's a, psychosis. a couple of years now in Illinois. Thanks, Alan. I appreciate the call and welcome to South Carolina. We're glad that uh, you escaped and have landed on these shores. You know, I, um, what I've heard about, and I don't want to get way into this because I, you know, things that I don't see with my own eyes or. But I do have a reputable source, someone that I trust, and I'm not going to throw their name out there because then she'll get a bunch of calls, but someone that I trust who knows about this, and it's kind of on the QT there, and it's not widespread, but there's a, there's a, a, yeah, not the QT, not where you get your gas and your ice cream cones, hopefully, but it's not, it's not, you know, widespread, it's, 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 isolated 
to a couple of schools, one for sure, and they're having to deal with one or two cases. And they're not accommodating. I mean, it's not that, that there's nothing been said about the school putting litter boxes in bathrooms and stuff like that. Um, you, if you remember, uh, we, we had a kind of a, a national scandal over that because it was being said, there was a story out there that was being widely circulated that litter boxes were being put in bathrooms and in school districts. And now Alan says that that actually happened in Illinois. I'm not questioning what he's saying about it, but I'm saying that to say that that is, and he didn't say this, but to say for the people that say, oh, this is widespread, this is happening all the time, um, well, it, it's it's probably not. It's just that it's so sensational that if it happens at all, it really gets people kind of going about it, you know? Um, and, and I think the school that's dealing with this thing about the furry um, is trying to, to deal with it in a way that is not accommodating, but at the same time, you know, once a person gets into a, a, a state of mind where they actually think they can that they it, they can behave like a cat in public and be treated that way or some type of other animal that uh, makes animal sounds rather than speaking you know that's one thing for a four-year-old or a three-year-old it's it's something totally different when you're talking about kids that actually are in school and manifest this stuff and there there, there can't be accommodation for it there there has to be corrective measures taken because I, you know, I guarantee you, they they go out to their first interview, and um, they meow an answer to the person that might be thinking about hiring them. Um, <laughs> it's not going to go well. That you know, so so there's, and it's not likely that that's going to happen. This kind of stuff generally passes, but it just it points a finger to the fact that as a culture. If we embrace these things and tell people that it's normal behavior, if we somehow agree that it's okay to manifest yourself as a different sex, how far away from that is it to say that you can manifest yourself as a furry? You know, self-identification, that's the order of the day. The way we make people happy, the path to happiness is being able to define yourself in any way that you choose and have society back that up, even if it's a fantasy that doesn't make any sense. You know, I was, I was going to move on to the 1619 Project because I, I want to spend some time on that today. But I do have this story from California. Do you know you can be fined in California if you refuse to lie? I mean, this is, this is how far we've come. Um, there, California, the state of California is forcing the Shake Shack... It's a restaurant in Oakland, and they're force, the California Civil Rights Commission is forcing people to use a gender pronoun for a person who doesn't fit that pronoun. And we're not, we're not talking about somebody who's had a sex change operation. We're not talking about—we're just talking about, you know, in, in the culture today, people can just declare, I'm not male, I'm female, and if you don't call that person she, if you misgender them, in some places, that's a crime. So essentially, California fined the Shake Shack $20,000 and gave that money to an employee that was consistently being misgendered by other employees, and it was determined by the California Civil Rights Court, the Civil Rights Court, 
wow, that our commission rather that that was discriminatory behavior and it was not being properly addressed by the management. The management pretty much told the the young man that was was complaining about this. So look, you're going to have to explain your gender preference to your coll- to your coworkers and get them to acquiesce. We're not going to step in and make them say something that they don't want to say. This is forced speech. This is the government saying you're going to use this language to describe this person, and you'll like it. And if you don't like it, we'll fine you $20,000 and give it to the person who we believe is being, quote, misgendered. California law, this is a quote, California law prohibits intentional misgendering in the workplace, said Kevin Kish, director of the Civil Rights Department, in a statement announcing the settlement. Uh, intentional misgendering and other forms of discrimination based on gender identity and gender expression can be stressful and traumatic. Yes, it can be stressful and traumatic. When you're being forced to tell a lie, that'd be pretty stressful on me. I'm sure it's pretty stressful on Shake Shack to have to pay $20,000 to somebody because they decided that they're the opposite sex. And not only do they decide that, we're going to force you to enter into that fantasy. They create a world. You don't live in that world. You live in a world where biology, science means things. But they're going to force you to move. You've got to close up shop in your world of reality and move over here to fantasy land and change your address. So if I lie to a government agent like a police officer or an FBI agent, that's against the law. I can be charged for that. But if I don't lie <laughs> to this other person, right. then I'm going to be charged for that. That's so, very good. You've got it, Gary Miller. Ding, 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 ding. Gary's got it. You can be charged $20,000 if you don't lie about a person's gender in California. You know, we have a rich history of comic books, of movies, stories, folklore that create characters that are really hard to get rid of. And the nastier the character, the harder it is to get rid of them. Think about it. I mean, we have vampires. How do you get rid of a vampire? You've got to drive a stake through his. You've got to find the coffin. Yeah, you, you put up a cross. It's not going to do it Come on. anymore. You've got, to, you've got to drive a stake through. You've got to find their coffin. Get them in the sunlight. During the day and, and drive a stake through their heart. So, um, you know, hopefully a prime rib. And then... And then you have Wolfman. How do you get rid of Wolfman? Got to have a silver bullet. Just a regular bullet. You can just fill him up with regular bullets. It's not going to matter. But you shoot him with a silver bullet, and that's it. Superman, good guy. How do you get rid of Superman? Kryptonite. It's the only thing that can take away his power. What about, what about uh, in you know, the X-Men lore? How do you get rid of Wolverine? I mean, he's got antinomian in his body. It's an indestructible substance. You have to shoot him with an antinomian bullet. And then we find out that even that doesn't work. So we, we've got a history of creating things that refuse to die. The 1619 Project is one of those things. And just like Wolfman and just like Wolverine and just like Superman and just like a vampire... It's a fantasy, but it won't die. Hannah Nicole Jones 
there's enough people out there who will pick up Hannah Nicole Jones' false history of the United States and propagate it for money and to make political points because it has it, it has nothing to do with actual history. Now, there are those who say, well, we need to overlook some of the the bad history because it really does point and out how bad slavery was. I, I got news for you. We can show the depth of the depravity of slavery and still keep our integrity by speaking the truth about what actually happened. But Hannah Nicole Jones has a has a more dark and foreboding motive here. She wants to turn the narrative of the United States, the American Revolution, not just into a flawed thing, but into a really bad thing. She actually suggests now that she's got a, a television video series of this thing out on Hulu, she actually should suggest in there that it would have been better had the British won the American Revolution because America was fighting the British because the British were threatening America's slave trade. So that's the, that's, that's the first thing. The core of what made—and this is from a long piece today in National Review— but I think it's Dan McLaughlin. Yes. But you, you need to go to National Review. If, if you don't have a subscription, you should have one because National Review has a lot of great information for conservatives that you don't find in a lot of other places. And we need to know about the 1619 Project because it's trying to rewrite the history of the United States in a very negative way. And you may say, well, why does that matter? It matters because this curriculum is being used in our schools. It's being hyped on Hulu. It's being in, in, in a, uh, not a comic book form, but a magazine series. And it's all a bunch of hooey. So the major cause of the American rebellion against Britain, according to Hannah Nicole Jones, is Again, America wanted to keep its slaves, and Britain, Great Britain, was threatening to do away with the slave trade. And that's absolutely ridiculous. The original magazine version of the 1619 Project, in the sentence that was has since been clarified, there's a, a sentence in there um, uh, that basically suggests that, uh, that America should have lost the war. But the thing is, it's blandly asserted as fact that one of the primary reasons for colonists deciding to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. At the time, Hannah Jones did not even bother to cite facts or scholarship when this was being published in a magazine to back up her theory other than asserting generically that in London they were, there were growing calls to abolish the slave trade. That would have upended the economy of the colonies in both the North and the South. That's false history. Sean Wiltz, who is a historian at Princeton, notes, the colonists had themselves taken decisive steps to end the Atlantic slave trade from 1769 to 1774. During that time, the following states, Maryland, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, and Rhode Island, either outlawed the slave trade or imposed prohibitive duties on it. 
Measures to abolish the trade also won approval in Massachusetts, Delaware, New York, and Virginia, but then were denied by, wait for it, royal officials. So in those states, they tried to get rid of the slave trade, and Britain said, nope, we still have the slave trade. You can't stop it because you're still a British colony. In fact, at the time, there was more opposition in the American colonies to the slave trade than there was in Britain, which did not ban it until 1807. By the way, that's when Congress banned slavery. Oh, signed into law by Thomas Jefferson. Hannah Jones centers her colonial narrative almost entirely on Virginia, but it escapes her notice that Virginia banned the transatlantic slave trade by statute in 1778 in a bill signed and probably written by the Virginia governor at the time, oh, Thomas Jefferson. Makes no sense whatsoever to say that Americans revolted against something that the British were not prepared to do, then did it themselves once the British opposition had been removed. It, see, when you, when you take this and present it as history, you're lying to the American people. You're presenting a false history. You're rewriting history with politics and racism as your agenda. And that's, I mean, particularly for school students, can you imagine going to, to school and learning that the United States rebelled against England because England was thinking about getting rid of the slave trade? Slavery wasn't abolished in England until in the 18, I think it was the 1830s. It's in the story here somewhere, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. More broadly, actual historians of the period are all but unanimous that the anti-slavery movement organized itself and enacted laws earlier in America than in Britain. The world's first anti-slavery society, first one in the world, was organized in Pennsylvania in 1775 at the urging of Quaker abolitionist Anthony Bizet. Over a decade before the nascent anti-slavery movement began seriously organizing in Britain, that would have been 18, 1786 to 87. So in 1785, before they even, before Wilberforce made his first public speech on getting rid of slavery in Great Britain, you had the first anti slavery society in the world being formed in the American colonies. Now we're going to come back in the next hour and talk some more about this. And you, you may think, well, why why spend time on this? It's just we just need to discard it. We can't. It's being taught in public schools across the country. It's a Hulu documentary series. You realize people are being told that it's a documentary, which means it's historically accurate. We've got to deal with these lies so that the American people have a clear picture of the fact that Hannah Nicole Jones has an agenda and she's pushing it through a false history.